Welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. Open your Bibles, 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. We are so blessed with good music every week, every week. Verse 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love God one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. When you ask a lot of people what their definitions of love is, you get a lot of different answers, especially in a world that we live in where the word love has become a God. Love is not a God, but God is love. Now, you really get some interesting answers when you ask children the definitions of love. Some are very profound. They did a survey of what love is. Would you define love? And here's some of the answers. Rebecca, age eight. When my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her. All, even when his hands got arthritis too. That's love. Billy, age four, says, when someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You just know that your name is safe in their mouth. <laughs> Carl, age five, love is when a girl puts on perfume and a boy puts on shaving cologne and they go out and smell each other. Chrissy, age six, love is when you go out to eat, give somebody most of your French fries without making them give any of them to you, any of theirs. Emily, age eight, love is when you kiss all the time. Then when you get tired of kissing, you still want to be together, you talk more. My mommy and daddy are like that. They look gross when they kiss. (laughs) Lauren, age four, I know my older sister loves me because she gives me all her old clothes and has to go out and buy new ones. <laughs> and finally, Karen, age seven, says, when you love somebody, your eyelashes go up and down and little stars come out of you. <laughs> a man saw a sign in a florist shop that said, say it with flowers. So he walked in and he asked the clerk, would you wrap up one rose for me, please? And she said, only one? He said, yes, ma'am, I'm a man of few words. Love is the distinguishing mark for believers. Jesus said, by this will all men know that you're my disciples, by your love for one another. In 1 John, there are basically three tests 
to prove your salvation, not to have, make your salvation or not to achieve it, but to prove it. it it's, it's just, first of all, there's going to be a moral test. Are you walking in ways of righteousness? Are you following the Lord's commands? Generally, are you, is it important to you to, to walk with him? There's the doctrinal test. Jesus Christ is God, the Son of God. He is God, and make sure your doctrine is correct, that he came in the flesh, and so forth. The other test is the social test, by your love for one another. Now, John repeats these several times, but there's one of them that he repeats more than the other. Which one do you think is the most important? They're all important, don't get me wrong, but he emphasizes love the most. He calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. And here he is late in his 90s, and he's talking to second and third generation Christians, and he's saying the most important thing is for you to love one another because God is love, and he wants you to understand the love of God. The Gnostics, the heretics were telling people that you've got to achieve certain knowledge, you've got to do this and that, or you're not going to make it. And, and they didn't love other people. And John said, that's not accurate. That is not authentic. It's when you love other people. And so in this particular passage, he begins by talking and speaking about the essence of God in verse 7 and 8. Let us love one another for love is of God. In verse 8, God is love. It's interesting in God's in John's gospel, chapter 4, John says God is spirit. We worship him in spirit and truth. And then in 1 John chapter 1, he says God is light. And obviously, he is the light of the world. And now he says God is love. A lot of people believe that God exists. No problem there. Do you believe there's a God? Yes. But their thinking about God is where the problem comes. You see, J James even writes later, he says, you believe in God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. And the demons should tremble because they know that one day they're going to be cast into the lake of fire. It's already a done deal. The time just hadn't happened yet. But a lot of people have that concept about God. They believe that there is a God, but, but they're afraid of him all the time. It's almost like, well, I dread meeting him one day. After all, I hadn't been exactly perfect and so forth. And they've got this idea that God is angry all the time and that God is against everything. God is against sin. He hates it. But he loved us enough. He loved the world enough to come rescue us from it. Uh, and because God is love, there's a couple of things John mentions. He said, first of all, it's going to be apparent in his children. It's going to be visible. Beloved, the word means divinely loved ones. When you, if I were to say to you, beloved, that means that God loves you. Loved by God. Let us love one another. And it says it's a, it's a continuous action. Present tense, keep on loving one another. Why? Because God is love. Let me ask you this, and I know the answer already. Have you inherited any of your parents' traits at all? <laughs> yeah, you watch your folks and you kind of see where you're headed, don't you? 
in some respects. I mean, I mean no disrespect. I ought to be real careful in the next hour. I don't know. Dad may be in here now. I don't know. But why do you think God's children are, are loving? Because we inherit what he is. He puts his spirit in us. He puts a love in our heart for other people. Why do we even care about anyone else? It's our nature to be selfish. You come into the world selfish. You don't have to be taught to be selfish. Babies are selfish. They only care about themselves. But, so our nature is that way. But when you meet Jesus and the power of the resurrected Christ lives in you and fills your life, the same love that God has for you, you begin to have for other people. And the word love here is the word agape. The, most of the words you hear for love in our society is the word eros, erotic. It's selfish, all about physical. I think I'm in love. You're in lust. You're thinking, oh, whatever. I'm just in, I, I'm enamored. In eros, you don't find in the New Testament one time. The pagans liked it. The pagans, it fit into their styles of worship especially when they had all these sexual connotations with their worship and the pagan gods. But they, didn't, they had the word agape in their vocabulary, but they didn't have any use for it. Because agape means sacrificial, unconditional love. It's a choice. It's not an emotion. It's a love that says, I want the best for that other person. That didn't fit into the lifestyle where they were all, eros is all selfish. I want my needs met and you can meet those needs and so I'm drawn to you and as long as you meet my needs and so forth, that's not agape love. And that's why John is saying this kind of love only comes from God. It's unselfish, it's unconditional, it's sacrificial. And he goes on to say that everyone who loves is born of God. Actually, it's translated begotten of God. I'm going to talk to you about that word begotten in a moment. But it, here he's saying at a time in your life, you committed your life to Christ. And since that time, God's love has been evident in your life. Perfect tense point in time, the effects go on. You keep on loving. Everyone who loves God is born of God, but, but then he says just the opposite. He said that kind of love is absent from his enemies. In verse 8, he who does not love, agape, present tense, it doesn't matter what somebody claims that they are or who they are. If they don't love, they don't know God. In fact, it is written in such a way, I'll bore you with the syntax, it's a timeless, aorist, active indicative. And I know that means nothing to you, but here's what it says. He doesn't even know God. He's not even acquainted with God. Now, he might know, he might can speak the language, but he has no idea what a relationship with God is. If a person can go through their life and not love agape kind of love, they don't, they're not acquainted with God. Let me ask you this. Are there people in the names of their religion killing innocent people? They don't know God. They don't know God. They're not even acquainted with him. God 
is love, John says. Love is not God. God is love. But love in our world has become a God. Only God is love. Now, after stating that God is love, we see John mentions the expression of this love. And if I want you to stay with me. I know you've heard a lot of this before, but there's some real aha moments here in this passage. The expression of God's love is shown in the fact that it says, in this was the love of God manifested. It was revealed. It was shown. You know, this amazing thing about God's love. It's unspeakable. I can't understand it. I don't know why I've experienced it. I never, I know I can never be separated from it. According to Romans eight thirty eight. nothing can separate us from the love of God. God's love is unending. Jeremiah 31, three says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. God's love is eternal. God's love is unselfish. It asks for nothing in return, but it does lead man to repentance and faith in him, according to Romans 2, 4 and 1 John 4, 19. It's unmerited. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. You can't buy it. It's unconditional. It's not based on what you and I can or cannot produce. His love is sacrificial. It's supernatural. It's satisfying. But this expression of love is shown When Jesus came, in fact, he mentions the sending of Jesus. And I emphasize that word sending because it does say in verse 9 that God sent Jesus. He sent him to come. Perfect, active, sent Jesus. We celebrate Jesus coming in the flesh. The effects are still going, aren't they? He's affecting yours in my life. That we might live. It indicates at a time in your life, you accepted Christ and you're still alive. You're still living. Now, what does that word begotten in verse 10 mean? He sent his only begotten, verse 9, only begotten son. Interesting word, monogeny. M-O-N-O-G-E-N-E, we get our word, it's actually a combination of two words, which mono means one, and genus is generation. It means one-of-a-kind birth, one-of-a-kind. Jesus came in the flesh, but he didn't have the same kind of birth that you and I have. We have an earthly father and an earthly mother. All of us were been, have been born the same way, even though there are, appears to be people f- from outer space every now and then. <laughs> but we've all been born the same way, haven't we? Except for Jesus. One of a kind. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, had an earthly mother. Nobody else has been born that way. And that virgin birth is important, folks. I want to tell you, because if Jesus had had an earthly father, he would have been born with a sinful nature just like you and me. But he was born sinless, and he lived a sinless life, and then died for our sins and was resurrected. It's also interesting that he said those in verse 8, I think it is, no, you know, verse 7, everyone who loves is born, begotten of God. There's only one, one kind of new birth. You can only be born again one way. Did y'all got me? Jesus isn't one of the ways. He's the only way. 
okay? Not all roads lead to God. Only one road through Jesus Christ. And to be born again means that you confess your sin, you repent of your sin, you turn from it, ask God to forgive you, place your faith and trust in the only way to God, and that is Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, the only one who's been born that way. There's some aha moments for you. John 3, 16, I think John said his only begotten son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Isn't it amazing how God's word all fits together? But I don't want you, and by the way, only begotten occurs nine times in the New Testament, five times in the writing, writings of John. John 1.14, 1.18, John 3.16, John 3.18, and 1 John 4.9. And only John uses the term to refer to the Son of God. God sent Jesus. Now let's talk about that. Because when he sent Jesus, Jesus came for one reason. And that was our salvation. So I want you to notice the salvation of Jesus. That we might live through him. Now in a moment I'm going to share something with you that I, I think is is. is a, I've, you've heard it, but you're going to rehear it, and you're going to go, oh, wow. Why did Jesus come? Alan Klein wrote a book, The Healing Power of Humor. And he talked about a family that gave away, was trying to give away a litter of 12 puppies. And first they put an ad in the paper that read, free to a good home, adorable puppies. And after several weeks... They still had nine of them left. So they changed their tactics. They put another ad in the paper that said, free to a good home, one very ugly puppy and eight pretty ones. And in the next two days, they gave away that ugly puppy nine times. <laughs> now, when Jesus came, he came for ugly puppies like you and me, sinners. He didn't come for righteous people. He didn't come for those that thought they were good. He came for sinners just like us. That's why he came, for one reason. Some of you remember Ty Cobb. Some of you may know the name Ty Cobb. He was one of the all-time greats in the game of baseball. He had a 367 lifetime batting average. Had 4,191 hits, 892 stolen bases. He won nine straight batting titles in his career. But he was one of the meanest men in baseball. He was not a good man. He was known for stopping at nothing to win. He would insult, humiliate, even injure other players in his quest for victory. His own teammates once rooted against him when he was in a tight race one season for the batting title. He was known to make unprovoked racial slurs. He had three wives, all of whom he verbally and physically abused. He was constantly involved in fistfights, arguments, and tirades against fans and players. He once pistol whipped a would-be mugger so badly that the face of the corpse could not be identified. 
Some players like the famous Ted Williams tried to help Cobb, but to no avail. Cobb was worth millions because of his early investment in Coca-Cola. And when he died, he had in his possession millions in stocks, bonds, and cash. Yet it would be hard to find anybody that would fit the specimen of a more apt specimen than him of total depravity. But the story doesn't end there. Not long before he died, Cobb was visited by a Presbyterian minister named John Richardson. When he first got there, Cobb curtly told him to leave. Two days later, Richardson returned. This time, Cobb listened as the pastor explained to him the plan of salvation. And hearing of Christ's love for sinners and how he had come to die for the likes of Ty Cobb, Cobb was overcome with emotion and Richardson continued to explain the necessity of repentance of sin and faith in Jesus as the only way of salvation. Cobb responded by telling the preacher he was ready to put his complete trust in Jesus as his savior. And he did. Two days before he died, Ty Cobb told Richardson, I feel the strong arms of God underneath me. And on his deathbed, July 17, 1961, he said, you tell the boys, I am sorry. It was the last part of the ninth inning that I came to know Christ. I wish it had taken place in the first half of the first inning. God's love sent Jesus to die for people like Ty Cobb to die for ugly puppies like you and me. That's why Jesus came. No perfect people. Jesus has never saved any perfect people. (laughs) Only sinners separated from God by their sin. Now, the salvation of Jesus is for everyone. But now I want you to notice something else because I just want you to get this. Notice the satisfaction of Jesus. And what do I mean by that in verse 10? In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation. New King James, King James has propitiation. Some of you may have atoning sacrifice or they may have have, uh, another word, expiation. But the word is helosmos, which is used four times in the New Testament in the context of Jesus' death. Now listen to this. Propitiation, helosmos, means satisfaction. Christ's death satisfied God's requirement for dealing with sin. Listen to these four verses. Romans 3.25, whom God sent forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Hebrews 2.17, therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 1 John 2.2, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for the whole world. And then of course here in 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, folks, the word helosmos, satisfaction, was a big word in the pagan religions because the pagan religions had all of these gods, little g gods. 
and they had to satisfy those gods or the gods would come after them, they thought. Their idea was happy God, happy life. And so they did all kinds of things. They would sacrifice all kinds of stuff, food offerings and other kinds of things to to satisfy their God. Now in Caesarea Philippi, at the base of a mountain, there were several pagan temples and one of them was the temple to the god Pan, P-A-N. Those of you who've been to Israel, you know exactly what I'm talking about because we go up there and we talk about this. And you can still see the big hole in the ground that this temple was built in front of that had a massive amount of water at the time running under the mountain. I'm sure it's still there, but it looks like a gaping hole. And they called that the gates of Hades, the gates of hell or Hades. Every year, they didn't want pan on their bad side. Because if you didn't keep pan, happy, chaos ensued, we get our word panic from that. And so every year they would sacrifice a virgin to the god pan, throw her off in that hole. If she surfaced, it meant pan didn't agree and they would throw another one. Now, Jesus took his disciples up to that place in Matthew 16, Caesarea Philippi. And at that time, there were a lot of pagan temples there. And that is where Jesus said, when Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, upon that statement, not upon Peter, Peter, the church is not built on the apostle Peter. It's built on the statement that he made. He said, upon that statement, I will build my church in the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So this pagan background with all of these pagan gods and people appeasing them or satisfying them, that's what the word propitiation means. But here's the aha moment. God did just the opposite. Instead of requiring us to do something to appease his judgment and sin and wrath that would come to sin, God sent Jesus to satisfy his own requirement for you and me. I had to stop and listen to those amens because that's exactly what he did. Jesus paid it all. Somebody ought to write a song about that. (laughs) He he satisfied the requirements. That is why that Jesus is the only way to God. He's the only one that could take care of sin because he was sinless. He's the only one that could pay the price. The wages of sin is death. He's the only one that can take us to God through faith in him. Don't let anybody in this world today tell you that he's only one of the paths to heaven. Folks, he's the only way. He's the only way. Propitiation, that is a big word, but you know what that means? It teaches us that God personally hates sin. Propitiation teaches us that sin is serious 
Propitiation teaches us that the greatness of God's love in which he provided the offering to turn his wrath away. How much can God love us to turn his own wrath away from us? Propitiation teaches us the truth that Christ's death satisfied the Father and was a substitution for us. It teaches us that God's holiness requires satisfaction. God's love provided that satisfaction. The only satisfaction you'll have for your sin is Jesus. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Now, after stating the love of God and the expression of that love through, that God showed us through Jesus, he mentions the exhibition of this love. How's it going to be shown? Just as God loves us, we're supposed to be the ones that love other people. You'll see the pattern that he set. The pattern is set in verse 11. God loves us. John 13, 34 says, love one another as I have loved you. We are to love in the same sacrificial manner. Love is not an emotion. It's a self-sacrifice. You folks sacrifice to make space for people to come hear the gospel. You have sacrificed to help people come to know Christ. You have helped in so many ways. In his book entitled Written in Blood, Robert Coleman tells a story of a little boy probably eight or nine years old, and his sister who had a a dreaded disease. The little boy recovered from the disease, and now his sister, who was six years old, was not going to make it unless their only hope was they were thinking that if they could give some of his blood to her, since he had already recovered from the same disease, that the antibodies and all would work to cure her. And so they asked Johnny... Johnny, would you be willing to give some of your blood or give your blood to your sister? He paused for a moment. His lip was trembling. Then he smiled. He said, yes, sir, I'll give my blood to her, my sister. Took them both into the operating room. They began the transfusion process from flowing his blood into hers. And you could almost immediately see her pale body began to have color and bring life. Johnny looked at his sister, didn't say anything. He just smiled at her. And after a while, the transfusion had been taking place, and Johnny asked the doc, he said, Doc, how much longer before I die? And the doc realized that his hesitation was and his trembling lip. He thought he was going to give his life for his sister to live. Now, Johnny didn't die. And his sister recovered. But Jesus Christ came and gave his life for us. And one of the reasons that we're supposed to be self-sacrificing and loving to other people is because we have him living in us. And And when the Lord lives in you, he puts a love for other people. And this love includes forgiveness The pattern's been set. Look, we're a bunch of ugly puppies that have been forgiven through the grace of God, through Jesus Christ. None of us in here are better than anyone else in the world. You may think you are. 
We weren't about half saved when Jesus came to save us. We were as lost as any other reprobate on earth is lost. But you've been saved through Jesus Christ. And now what? He states the principle in verse 12. No one has seen God at any time. If God can't be seen, then what hope does the world have in recognizing who he is? So that is why Jesus came. John wrote in John 1.14, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. If Jesus hadn't come, we'd never seen God. And now Jesus has gone back to heaven. So who's left to show the love of God? All the ugly puppies that have been saved. Right? That's us. I mean, think about it. God loved you enough to to save you. His love lives in us. And if the world is going to see love, we're the ones that are left to show it. Author and lecturer Leo Buscaglia once wrote about a contest that he was asked to judge. And the contest was to find the most caring child. The winner was a four-year-old boy whose next-door neighbor was an elderly man who had recently lost his wife. And upon seeing the man crying, the little boy went over to the old man's yard, climbed up in his lap, and just sat there. When he got home, his mother asked him, what did you say to him? And he said, nothing. I just helped him cry. That's what we do. We are the ones that love other people. Sometimes you help a neighbor cry. Sometimes you lend a helping hand. Sometimes you meet somebody's needs. Sometimes you you do something that's out of the ordinary. Listen, we live in a world that's gotten so rude. The world we live in is rude. Manners have gone out. People don't care. They don't notice you. If you're walking up there, they don't. I mean, it can be as simple as holding a door for somebody. And they'll go, what's wrong with you? We're living in a world that's getting worse by the day. All the hatred and the bitterness and the anger. And we have the remedy, don't we? It's the love of God. The reason people are so hateful, they don't have the love of God in them. And just think, you and I could be in the same place if we didn't have the love of God in us. I'm telling you, if Jesus hadn't saved me, I'd be mean as a junkyard dog. (laughs) And so would you ugly puppies. We've been saved by the love and the grace of God. And if anybody's going to extend love, 
Now, it's not an emotion. Remember, it's a choice. It's, it's sacrificial. It's not emotions. We use love so interchangeably. It's not an emotion. I'm going to reach out to somebody that I really don't like because I know that if they come to know Jesus, they can be so much different than they are. If you've never met Jesus, I want you to know how much God loves you today. If you're watching us online, you see this on television, God loves you. Well, you don't know all I've done. Yeah, he does. And he saves all of us ugly sinners because he knows. And you can have him right now if you will ask God to forgive you, place your faith in Jesus Christ, and trust him as your Lord and Savior. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for our sin. And I pray for those now who just need that love in their life. They need to be forgiven of their sin. They need to have the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. They need forgiveness of their sin. And for those who need Jesus, Lord, I pray you'll bring them to you. You convince them. You convict them of sin. You convince them they need to be saved. I thank you for a place like this church full of forgiven sinners, but they love you and they love each other. I pray our love will continue for one another and help us to be gracious and caring because of the love you've put in our hearts. I pray for those that need to be baptized, that they're not out of shame. They're, they stand unapologetically. I've been saved and by the resurrected Jesus. So, Lord, during this time, would you bring people to you? In Jesus' name.